Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for June 28th, 2015. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jacks Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon this morning is entitled, Fishing for a Man. I'm grateful that we have a Jewish musician who gets it. If you don't get the sermon, that was it right there, okay? Now, I want to invite you to take just a moment to think about the survey question included on the front of your bulletin. I am curious about the questions you hear at work, in your neighborhood, on the airwaves, in your experience of popular religion common religion on the street, what are the most important issues? Talk to me just a minute. What'd you put down? Who speaks for God? That's a big one these days, Hal. Thank you. What else? What'd you put down? Why do people use religion to justify what other people should or shouldn't do? Thank you. What faith is the right faith? Anybody have anything about the end of the world? Signs of the times, eschatology? That stuff's out there. Did anybody have anything about suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Somebody had that. Does anybody have anything about God's will? Does God have a purpose for my life? Anybody have anything about Jesus' death on the cross? Anybody have anything about money? Anybody have anything about money? No question. Oh, so there's a hand back there. I see that hand. Thank you. Anybody have anything about heaven? Please tell me that in in your experience, you hear that question. I know you hear that question. What is heaven? Where is heaven? How do I get to heaven? Who's going to heaven? Somebody's bound to have had that on your bulletin. Uh, What about, what do I have to do to please God? How do I please God? Is that a question? What about, is Jesus the only way? Lots of interesting issues swirling about our culture. And if you'll listen, I think you can't not hear them. They swirl about us all the time. What are, the, what are the questions that rise in popular religion that are important issues? We're going to talk about some of these today, and it's interesting to me how similar their questions were 2,000 years ago to our questions today. Over and over, and then over again, the writer named Mark is hammering home a single truth in his gospel. What is it? What is the good news that he started telling us about in the very first chapter with this week's Supreme Court decision making gay marriage the law of the land? There will be a lot of preaching today about who's right and what's wrong with this country. But Jesus responded to four burning issues of his people and he said in no uncertain terms, this is not what it's about. 
And then he told a shockingly simple story to end it all, and he said, if you want to know what it is about, here's what it's about. I'm convinced he would say the same thing to us today because those so-called burning issues from 20 centuries ago are still with us today. The first issue, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, no one should be surprised that the first question is about money. Tell me you don't have questions about your money and how you use it and how you spend it. Though there is much more than meets the eye in this text, one commentary warns of a common error of which I have been guilty, of making of this lesson a lesson of two citizenships or an introduction to the separation of church and state. Kind of interesting, the, uh, the confession that I pulled was from a previous time that I preached on this text. And you see in that confession this idea of two citizenships. And the commentary that I was reading this week says, that ain't what it's about, Russ. So I stand corrected. Mark has something deeper in mind. For the better part of a century, the land of Israel had been ruled by imperial Rome. Mark is likely writing in the aftermath of a failed insurrection that preceded a final onslaught of Rome in which the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 CE and hopes of national sovereignty were crushed. It was 19 centuries later, the year 1948, before Israel again controlled its own land. I think that's some of our electricity problems this week. Adding to these tensions were internal schisms within the religion of Judaism. Religious extremists were one group who struck out at Rome whenever possible. They wanted to engage, but they wanted to engage violently. Isolationists were another group who favored as much separation with Rome as possible, the pagan influence. So they were going to stay as separate as possible. And others who were willing to assimilate or collaborate with Rome in raids their more conservative religious counterparts on either side. There were at least three contentious divisions within, within Judaism. So the question about paying taxes to Rome was not a new one, nor was it a question about citizenship. That question regularly divided the Jewish population, and when Jesus asked his opponents religious folk for a denarius and they produce one for him, the trap has already been turned on them. You see, for the Orthodox who took seriously the commandment, thou shalt make no graven images, possessing the Roman coin that had the icon, that's the Greek word for the image of Caesar, 
It had the image of Caesar, and for Orthodox Jews, that was a breaking of the first commandment, no graven images. So they come to trap Jesus, and they say, should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, let me see a coin. And they produce a coin, which according to the Orthodox was a breach of the commandment. Then Jesus sets his own snare even tighter when he responds to them, so give to the emperor. And the Greek word there is better translated repay, like the repayment of a debt. So what he says to them is, repay to the emperor what you owe to the emperor. And use your money to repay to God what you owe to God. Now what did observant Jews owe to a brutal pagan emperor who was occupying the land that God promised them? They didn't think they owed the emperor a thing. Jesus is not suggesting a compromise of dual citizenship. Pay your taxes, go to your church. He is calling out the hypocrisy of those who piously claim allegiance to God but keep a little Roman currency in their pockets just to make life a little bit easier. You get it? What's going on here? We do not live under a foreign oppressive rule. The President of the United States and the vast majority of our elected officials are confessing Christians. So our context is completely different, but given that religious facade that spreads across our culture, those who seek to be followers of Jesus would do well to consider what securities we hold in our pockets, so to speak. Our money, our guns, our voter registration cards with their stamps of partisan loyalty. What are your loyalties, your allegiances? Jesus dares us no less than he dared his pious opponents 20 centuries ago to stake our lives in a dependence and trust in something much bigger than our money or our guns. What would it really mean for us to trust the future to God? Issue number two, when I polled my preacher camp friends with this survey, the very first response I got back was from a pastor friend who had just done a funeral this week, and his answer was heaven. It's the question I got asked this week, how do I get to heaven? Where is heaven? What is heaven? It's a perennial concern for people of faith, and I understand that. Death, being the great frontier of the unknown, is bound to be the source of a lot of curiosity. But when the Sadducees question Jesus about the afterlife, he surprises them, and we need to be listening to what he said. He tells this wonderful story about seven Jewish brothers. When the first one dies, as was their custom, the next brother marries his widow. In a patriarchal culture, this was a means of protecting a woman from the poverty and abuse she might suffer if she were manless. But this next brother dies in Jesus' story, and in succession, succession, all seven of the brothers die until the woman has been married to all of them. In heaven, they ask, whose wife will she be? Now, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, 
they were sad, you see. That's how you can remember the Sadducees. They were sad. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So their question is disingenuous from the beginning, but it doesn't stop Jesus from teaching them a lesson that they never forgot. I get asked the same question on a not infrequent basis, though people usually ask the question to me like this, am I going to see my husband in heaven? Will I get to meet up with my grandparents in heaven? A sermon that I heard in this city one time said, yes, and you're going to get to meet your aborted children in heaven and know them by name and recognize them. That's what heaven's like. That's the kind of stuff we're still preaching about heaven. It's the kind of question the Sadducees were posing of Jesus there are a lot of preachers who have sold lots of books on the comfort of telling people the answers to those questions that they want to hear. But I think Jesus would have us question those answers. He questions them in this text. What I hear Jesus answering the Sadducees is that heaven, whatever it is, is completely different from earth, and we will be too. He says you'll be angels in heaven, now, what does that mean? I think it means if we are in the presence of God, it won't matter. We will not be disappointed or let down or surprised by who we see or who we don't see in heaven. As Jesus goes a little farther to say that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living here and there, now and then. And what this means is that we ought to be preoccupied with life here as we know it now and how we live it. And back to lesson number one, we should trust the future to God. What would it mean for you to trust your future? Do you really trust your future to God? Issue number three in one form or another, may be the question that I get asked the most as a minister. It takes a lot of forms. Someone has mentioned it this morning. But basically, people want to know what they have to do to please God. There's a kind of fundamental anxiety among religious people, I think, as they think of God, because too many of us were raised with the image of what someone has called the, the bully God. God is up there, out there, watching, waiting, anxious to slap us down for our misdeeds, ready to pronounce the ultimate sentence of hell if we don't finally get it right. But that idea is ubiquitous and insidious. That means it's everywhere and it's deceitful. The scribe says, which commandment is the greatest? In other words, if I'm trying to live a legalistic life, do everything that God requires, if I'm living fearfully every rule, anxiously trying to keep every law, which one of them is the most important? Now, I'm not sure if this scribe is asking which law is the top. You know, he wants to get to the top and do the most important one in the legalistic life he's living. Or was he asking which was the lowest common denominator? You know, if I'm only going to keep one, which one does it have to be? 
Jesus satisfies the legalism of his question and turns the question upside down again at the same time. He quotes scripture, which is always a safe bet if somebody asks you a religious question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The Jews quote that every day. It's the Shema. It's the most important text for Jews. Love God with all your heart. And then in a little odd mathematical paradox, Jesus gives a second law, which sometimes some, some uh, inter- translations say is like unto the first one. You know, it's equal to the first one. And then he calls the two of them one commandment. There is no other commandment singular, Jesus says, that's greater than these, plural. Well, when Jesus gives this answer, the scribe says, you are right, Jesus, loving God is more important than all of our rituals, more important than all the offerings we make at the temple, the sacrifices. And he's paraphrasing the prophet Samuel from years before, to obey God is better than to offer sacrifice. Jesus' reply is interesting because the text makes it clear that this man understood with his head. You have answered wisely, Jesus says. The Greek root of that word is the same word from which we get our word mind. You have answered well in your mind, Jesus says. And then he pays him a kind of backhanded compliment. You're close to the kingdom of God. Close. To the kingdom of God. But you know, the longest journey is from your head down to your heart. And the heart of the matter, Jesus says, is throwing out our legalism altogether. St. Augustine said, love God and do as you will, or do as you please. And isn't that the truth that Jesus is offering here? If we love God, not just inside our heads. If we love God, we will love our neighbor. How else would we show that we loved God? Where is God? The only way to show that we love God is by loving our neighbor in the way we live. So if you are worried about pleasing God, maybe you are thinking too much. Don't worry. Just love and trust God with the rest. And the final issue is an issue that Jesus brings up. These other three, they've come to him and ask about. Jesus brings up this last one, and this is the one that I most wish I had a whole sermon uh, to preach on. I call this issue in my list ideology. This is another one of those questions that comes to me in a myriad of ways, and in our troubled times, everyone is on the bandwagon and everybody is a preacher. One of you mentioned it this morning. The essence of this issue is being right, thinking right. It's about truth and our monopoly on what's right. I'm right about gay marriage. And I'm right about terrorism and immigration and racism. And mainly I'm right about, well, I'm right about everything. That that means I'm going to heaven and you're not because you've got the wrong answers because they're not my answers. And that about settles it. That sound familiar to you? It's kind of what's going on in our culture today, isn't it? I'm right and you're not. 
Jesus takes an issue that could not have been any more contentious or central in his day. I think all the issues in our day, in one way or another, revolve around the question of the Bible. How do we read it? What does it mean? What does this tell us about truth? Is Jesus the only way? How we read the Bible? Well, maybe all the issues of Jesus' day revolved around the question of Messiah. Who is he? Is he coming? When is he coming? Will he restore the throne of David? You know, in the triumphal entry, which has just happened, the crowds come out and they bow down and they put their cloaks on the ground for Jesus and they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Some have said, he is Messiah. You see, that question was burning in their minds and in their, their hearts For many first century Jews, this was as central to their understanding of faith as Jesus' death, atonement theology, is for Christians. The Messiah will be the son of David. Jesus died for our sins. They were kind of parallel issues. And Jesus, again, is shocking. He again plays their legalistic game. He uses their own narrow literalism against them. He says to them, is is the Messiah going to be David's son? And then he says, how can the Messiah be the son of David? When David himself says, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. So Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how could he possibly be David's son? Now this is a convoluted argument But it sounds like the kind that I have to argue with people a lot these days. The Bible says, but you know it says, and you know, you know, it's a kind of convoluted argument. But I think Jesus is sparring intellectually with a group of religious faithful whose religion has gotten in their way. You know anybody like that? Whose religion has gotten in their way? Maybe Jesus is trying to show them by tying their argument in knots with their own scripture and their own logic and their own preconception that this game we are playing is futile. The Messiah will be the son of David because the Bible says, or gay marriage is wrong, or slavery is right because the Bible says, or Jesus is the only way because the Bible says. Do you hear what I'm saying? Maybe there is something more important than what the Bible says. And maybe that something is the picture that the Bible gives us through Jesus of how we ought to live. Money, heaven, working to please God, being right, all the issues. Mark's gospel is trying to teach us through the life and the death of Jesus that what it's all about is not about being right. It's about being found faithful. So beware of the scribes. The scribes, in quotes, that is, anyone who walks around wrapped in the arrogant robes of I'm right and you are wrong. Beware of these scribes. And here's what it's all about. The text says Jesus 
watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and a poor widow came in, and she put in two small copper coins, which are worth about a penny. And he said to them, truly, I tell you that this poor widow has put in more than all the rest, for they have contributed out of their abundance which is how most of us give. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So listen carefully. If you take this story literally, her gift to the church cost this woman her very life because she gave all she had to live on And that's what it's all about. That's what Mark's been trying to tell us from the beginning and what he's going to continue to try to tell us to the end. From the beginning to the end, it is about sacrificial living and that's what Jesus dying is all about. It's not about being right. It's about being found faithless. And today, we need it. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.